Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Low Season Traveller Insider Guides. I'm Jed Brown, founder of Low Season Traveller, and this week I'm joined by an international tourism consultant, researcher and speaker, and I'm delighted to say he's also joined us on the board of Low Season Traveller. Dr. David Ehrman is a consultant and speaker with a focus on destination management, service quality improvement and sustainability. During his career, he has managed large-scale consulting and development projects in Europe, the Middle East, Asia and Oceania, and these projects included developing national tourism strategies and quality management systems for hospitality operators. In addition, David researches, teaches and guest lectures on both service management and destination management related topics at international tourism schools. In 2017, he was involved in preparing the UNWTO's Journey to 2030, uh, a report for the International Year of Sustainable Tourism for Development, focusing on the private sector's contributions to achieving the sustainable development goals. David has also recently moderated the Destination Day at the ITB in Berlin and made several presentations on the topics of how destinations can manage tourism in order to avoid over-tourism and also millennials as sustainable travellers. I caught up with David recently and we spoke about sustainable tourism management, the causes of over-tourism, the Instagram effect, so-called, how destinations can guard against surges in tourism which diminish the travel experience, and whether tourism volumes could ultimately be self-regulating. Oh, and we also spoke about David's dream of doing an endless summer surf charter one day. Enjoy. So, David, a very good morning to you and welcome to the Low Season Traveller podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great, to have you, great to have you on the show. So, um, I guess we should set the scene, first of all, David. Um, I'm sat in my soundproofed uh, booth in the office in Manchester on a cool and damp summer's day. Uh, where are you this morning and, uh, and how's your morning shaping up? <laughs> well, I'm sitting in my accommodation in Salta, Argentina at the moment, and it's a, it's a very crisp winter's morning here as well. So, different very parts good. of the planet, but the weather seems to be similar by the sounds of things. Oh, very good. Well, very good or, or not, as the case may be. So, look, you, you've had, obviously, an incredible career, as we, we heard at the introduction there, um, in, in travel and tourism. So I figured just to start, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your journey um, and, and how and why you got into the, the travel industry? Of course, um, it's a great question. I think I've always been traveling my, my whole life. Um, I grew up between Germany and New Zealand. I'm born in Germany and I actually moved to New Zealand when we were five, um, when I was five. And so I've always grown up between different countries, moving around, and um, that interest sort of continued when I when I studied and started my my career. So I studied marketing and management, focusing on tourism. Um, I always travelled in my in my breaks, spent time working in different countries, um, including Bhutan, Sweden, um, Switzerland, um, throughout the Middle East and, and different places throughout the last fifteen years. And travel's just always been one of a part of my life and professionally as well as personally. And I just think it's a fascinating industry to be in and I wouldn't want to do anything else. 
fair play. The, 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 it was interesting, actually. I recorded a podcast uh, recently with uh, Dan Pierce of, of TTG, whom I, I know that you, you know very well as well. Um, and, and Dan was saying that one of the, the first words that he ever heard when he joined the travel industry was uh, his, his uh, colleague had said, welcome to the travel industry. You'll probably never leave. And I, and, and I actually had the same circumstance as well. My first boss in travel said the same. And I sort of like, yeah, yeah, we'll see about that. And, um, you know, here, here I am, what, 25 years later. Here you are a good number of years later. Uh, do, you think, do you think it's something that you'd ever leave? I suppose, why would you want to? No, re really not. I think there's, there's such a diversity. And, I mean, over my shorter career, shorter than yours, <laughs> in, in travel and tourism, I've, I've worked in everything from, from consulting to, um, to teaching at universities. Um, there's always different aspects and every, every job that I take or every, every project that I work on teaches me something new. And every, every time we solve a challenge for the tourism industry, there seems to be a new one. So I think the work will never run out and it's just a fun industry to be in. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's you know, when you talk about the, the challenges, um, you know, again, we, we always say in the, tra in the travel industry, there's, there's no such thing as a normal year because anything that happens anywhere in the world seems to have some kind of a knock-on effect to the, the travel and tourism uh, industry. So I guess, you know, over the, over the years that you've been working in travel and tourism, what are the most prominent kind of changes that, that you've noticed in the industry? Sure, I think one of the, um, one of the main ones has simply been the, the volume of tourists. I mean, you see this in some of the statistics that could come out, but also just in the, in the personal experience when traveling. Um, air travel has become so much easier, um, so cheap as well, which leads to the, the volume in a way. Um, and speaking about New Zealand, my home, um, having seen the number of tourists that have, that have arrived there over the years, um, some sleepy, sleepy little towns that have now turned into quite massive um, destinations with, with a lot of visitors. And I think this, this volume creates other challenges, um, logistical challenges, getting the people from A to B, getting them through um, passport control and into a country, and back out the other side, um, making sure that the right services are available for them in the country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in other countries, there, there's health and safety concerns. Um, there's, there's concerns relating to environmental uh, damage or deterioration because too many people want to see these beautiful places. Um, the beautiful places are often the reason we go somewhere. So. It's, it sort of makes sense that people want to go there, but how do we, how do we manage this properly? How do we make sure that um, there's still a place, it's still a place that people want to go and visit in the future. Um, so I think it's the volume overall creates, creates sort of knock on effects that, that need to be dealt with. Do you, do you think I heard um, Chris Flynn from the World Tourism Association for Culture and Heritage, he was saying that the, the growth in tourism numbers um, and, the, and the projected growth in tourism numbers is, is going to be the, the, pl the plastic in the ocean, is what he called it, of the, the global travel industry. Do you, do you think it's on, on the same kind of level? It's a, a nice comparison, actually. Um, well, in, in a way, yes, because I think, I mean, on, on one hand, more people getting to travel is a, is a great thing. 
um, because it makes people more more aware of other cultures. It makes makes them more more global citizens. And at the same time, though, it it creates um, damage in a way, or it creates um, negative side effects like plastic in the ocean, which is not always tourists that do it. It can also be the local um, local people sometimes. But in a way, yes. I mean, people are very visible, just like the um, the plastic on the beach in the ocean. Um, I, I spent some time living in, in Bali the last years, which is a, a stunning, stunning island, beautiful, but on, when there was big storms and you see, um, you see a lot of plastic being washed on and it's just right in your face. You can't ignore it. Um, and I think it's the same with, with big waves of tourists um, overrunning a, a cultural destination or some sort of environmental destination. Um, it's very visible and yeah, so maybe that's that's also what causes people to then want to want to change that to say, hey, this is too much, um, because it's so visible. It uh, we I mean we actually met um, for the first time earlier this year at the the, the global travel show ITB in Berlin, um, and you were hosting a conference session entitled "Focus on Overcrowded Destinations: uh, The Measures and, and Lessons Learned," and that was obviously against a backdrop of the fact that um, in 2011, the, the UNWTO drew up a paper entitled Tourism Towards 2030, which anticipated that by 2030, we'll see 1.8 billion international tourists in the world. Um, and in this paper, it was also predicted that the world would have 1.2 billion visitors by 2018. And as we both know, um, in January this year, just before we met at ITB, the UNWTO identified that in 2018, um, the world actually hit the 1.4 billion mark, so, so two years ahead of all predictions, um, which is obviously a difference of 200 million. Uh, but I was looking at this um, recently, and I, I, think, I think we might have discussed this before, but you know, we always hear these numbers of, of millions banded around. So to put the 200 million extra into perspective, the difference between uh, 1 million and 200 million can be put like this. If we travel back in time 1 million seconds ago, we would be 12 days in the past. So, you know, roughly on the 1st of June. If we yes. traveled back 200 million seconds um, into the past, we'd be six and a half years in the past or 1st of January 2013. So this 200 million is a colossal, colossal difference. Um, what, what's your take on over tourism generally? And, and what do you see as the causes? You know, we mentioned there the, the, the low cost flights. Um, is, it, is it just about the easy accessibility and availability or, or is there more to it than that? Um, yeah, great question. I mean, f first of all, I, I agree 200 million is a, is a, is a massive number. I mean, um, I think Indonesia is the fourth most populous country and they have 250 or 260 million inhabitants. So this extra 200 million be a pretty big country if it existed. Yeah. So, and I, I think that the, the sheer the sheer number numbers are, are definitely one of the issues as I mentioned before. Um, but we need to look at this in a in a sort of bigger bigger scope. Um, I did have the honour to to work with the ITB the last two years at the destination days, and both times over tourism was a was a topic, a very important topic. And, and I think the industry and different participate uh, participants and different stakeholders are taking it very seriously. And 
we had sessions with everyone from from ministers so ministers panel on this um, we talked to some of the most prominent affected destinations so amsterdam barcelona dubrovnik on on what they're doing in this and i think numbers are definitely one of the one of the causes so that more and more people are traveling and over tourism in a way is when there's too many tourists in some sort of location for someone or something. So either there's too many people for, for the natural environment, which leads to the close closure of beaches in Thailand and in the Philippines. We saw that last year and this year. Or in a city. In Amsterdam and Barcelona, it's been mainly the local population that sort of said, hey, stop. Uh, this is our city too. Yeah. Um, if you have... If you have more people than, than, than or more tourists than citizens, it just puts a huge strain on the on the infrastructure, and it it has been said to displace people from um, from apartments because they're being rented out to to tourists rather than to locals, etc. So I think that the number of travellers is is definitely what is um, what is creating this concern, and in, in a way though, it's. It's a challenge that the industry or that, that tourism has created for itself because the, the, the focus has always been on numbers, the number of arrivals. And I think if you still look at the, the tourism strategies and the, the tourism goal setting for most destinations, it's still focused on how many people are we going to get to our destination. So this, this number of arrivals, the number of visitors has been the focus of um, tourism development in many countries. For the simple reason that it's one of the only things that is very easily manage, uh, measurable in tourism. And I think we're sort of seeing the, the back of that now, where, or the, the negative side effects, where destinations have been working on getting more people there without thinking very closely, what kind of people do we want? Um, do, do these tourists fit with, um, with our culture? Do they respect our culture? Do they respect, um, do they respect nature? Do, do they pay enough for the privilege of coming to our destination? Because, well, there's, there's two things. This, the straight focus on, on arrivals would be like if you tell a hotel manager, okay, your goal from now is to get the most number of check-ins into your hotel. Not length of stay, not revenue per available room or, or rates, but the number of check-ins. That will, that will change how that manager will run the hotel. Um, yeah. if, that's, if that's their goal, they will get people in and they will get rid of them as quickly as possible, in a way, because that's the goal that's, that's, been, that's been set for them. And I think that's, that's been one of the challenges that other measures in tourism have been very difficult. In a hotel, I can measure my revenue per available room and I can maximize for that. So I can raise prices when demand is high and I can lower prices when demand is low to, to try and get, get occupancy and then with the rate, try to get the most out of my limited, limited supply of rooms. Now, destinations are still quite, from what I've, I've seen, still not quite there. Um, very few destinations work on a sort of yield basis. They don't really try to yet look at, well, how much do we want to earn from this? So if, we, if a destination wants to make $100,000 from tourism, 
we can have a thousand people paying us a hundred dollars each, or we can have a hundred people paying a thousand dollars each. You need to offer a different experience and they will be different tourists, but it could be a conscious choice. You could make the same amount of money by servicing fewer people if that was your strategy. So I think in a way that this is focused on numbers over the years that has led to some of these challenges. And now we're seeing the knock-on effects of that and destinations are still catching up on, on managing this. That's, I mean, it's, I love the way you've put it in the context like the hotel and the check-ins. Because um, and, and only, only yesterday, uh, no, the day before yesterday, I was at this uh, City Fair event and there was a great speaker actually from the uh, from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Now Amsterdam we know suffers with over tourism and uh, the Van Gogh Museum they, they measure the satisfaction of the clients, uh, they measure um, the amount of bustle which is the, the, the hustle and everything else and they're, they're doing great okay. things to try and you know alleviate the, the bustle in the museum even though it's actually one of the smaller museums for its visitor numbers um, in Europe. So, you know, compared to the Louvre, it's got less uh, square meter uh, space per visitor than, um, you know, th th than anywhere else. But uh, one of the questions I put to them is, is, you know, is there a magic number? What's the maximum number of visitors you can have in a year? And, and it's, about, it's about knowing that number. And when you were talking there about the hotel, it, it kind of a bell went off for me, which is, you know, with a hotel, the starting point is, I know if I'm the manager, I know how many rooms I've got. I know the maximum that we can take in our hotel. I suppose my question for you is, as far as you're concerned, do destinations, do they know what that figure is? And do they know how far off that figure they are? That's a very, very good question. And I think that's, that's one that needs to be answered in order to... Um, in order to really solve this this problem, because over tourism is very subjective at the moment. Um, over what? So a, a number above what? Yeah. <laughs> for, for some people, if you're um, if you're a local resident, maybe as soon as there's ten visitors to your town, it's too much, because they're, they're if there's only one cafe, they're taking up your cafe seats, um, they're crowding that one place that yeah. you always want to go to. And you won't be happy happy about it. In other places, maybe it can, it can in bigger cities, they can probably take a few more tourists because they already have um, better infrastructure, etc. But also there, there's a limit, and sometimes you might not see that limit coming. Right? It will, it's like the frog being slowly boiled. Um, that you, if, if from one day to the next, you suddenly had a million visitors to your town there'd be a, a big reaction, but if it's taken time and it's grown slowly and people start making some money from it, then it, it, it takes a while until they go, oh, hang on, actually, this, this is too much. You know, this, is, this is pushing me out of my city. So I, I think that the answer to your question is no, I don't, I don't think that that has been done in, in many destinations. I think some destinations are better than this than, at this than others. If you look at... Um, for example, New Zealand um, yeah. is the, the great walks, some of the great walks, um, which are some of the sort of most spectacular hiking trails in New Zealand, and you have to book them in advance. Um, they only give the, a certain number of people access. Um, the Department of Conservation has decided 
this number of people are allowed on these trails at any one time. And once those tickets are gone, that's it. Then um, you need to wait for, for next year or for the next season. So um, I think in a way, if you can calculate these, and this is for the natural environments and the, the infrastructure that they have. So they control this infrastructure and they can be aware of what, um, what number of people would, would be suitable for this area at any one time, ensuring that they can still conserve nature. Um, now, in, in other destinations, let's say a city, it's much more difficult because there's a lot, a lot of different operators involved. Um, it's not all out of one hand, sort of. It's, um, it's too, many, too many actors involved um, that it becomes difficult to see what the impact really is. A museum like the Mango Museum or, or others, um, Disneyland, etc., theme parks, they can manage this very well. Um, they can... If you, if you look at the management of, of big theme parks, I mean, they're integrated destinations and they, they know who's coming through the door. Um, they can see, okay, there's queues here, let's do something somewhere else. Um, so this, this sort of shifting tourist flows around around a destination is, is much easier to do for an integrated destination than it is for a communal destination or for sort of an organic destination. And I think that's that's that, that's one of the holy grails. If we could manage manage that, or find a find a way to to measure the the real impact and make adjustments as we go along, yeah. I think that would that would help to solve or at least alleviate some of the symptoms of overtourism. It's interesting, isn't it? When you talk about the theme parks, um, it's a great it's a great example. I, I've sort of thought for a while there are probably certain cities which actually you know by the sound of it aren't really far off being a a, a theme park so if you know if you look at um you know for large parts uh, you know venice mm -hmm. you know it's you know it, locals don't really live there anymore <laughs> you know, in the center of venice uh, they've been squeezed out it's all souvenir shops it, it's I've, and i've never been i've got to confess i've never been to venice um but it sounds More to me right. like it is almost a it is almost a theme park you know it's this is and maybe a lot of these big old towns that's that's what they're becoming but in theme parks you know what they're great at as you were lead, uh, um, as you led to there just before is they they have those signs everywhere that say look you know the big attractions you know the i don't know the mickey mouse wheel it's, it's actually got a two-hour queue so you might want to go to, and then there's another attraction which is only a half an hour queue. And they sort of direct you and they do it on them. Um, I was at a theme park last year with my daughters and you had it on the app. And on the app, it shows you the waiting times so that then you're going to go to the, uh, the other ones. And it was just making me think that maybe, like you say, these integrated destinations, um, you know, maybe that's the way in which it's going to go is, you know, visitors will have apps on their phone which will tell them, look, you know, St. Mark's Square or the Rialto Bridge or whatever has got a waiting time of, so you might want to go somewhere else. Or, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's sort of where it's, where it's heading in a way. I think um, IT or even, you know, we all have mobile phones now. Um, anywhere you go, you have Wi-Fi access pretty much. Um, and... I think it doesn't even need to be an integrated destination anymore. If you can somehow have an integrated, at least information system yeah. or a communication system where you can tell visitors, you know, you might want to hold off. Um, it's a peak time at the moment. 
um, then or, or direct, have you looked at this already? You know, um, maybe if this this one square is very full, maybe there are other attractions you would like to see. So yeah. these are some options where you have um, where you have lower waiting times. Yeah. Is that way you're managing people's expectations because I, th I think that's that's what it comes down to. And I think this is this is related to the to the hotel example again. Uh, we did some research um, a while ago into online reviews. And online reviews generally go down as hotels get busier. So as they get towards the peak, as they get towards that capacity, the, the peak 100% full capacity, service levels drop. They always will because the systems are stretched. There is this sort of optimum layer where you're very busy, but you can still provide that top service. And I think if you push it to this limit the whole time, it actually reduces people's experiences as well. And I remember this from the, from the ITB two years ago. Um, I, I led the panel with um, the mayor of Dubrovnik um, and the heads of marketing for both Amsterdam and Barcelona. And Dubrovnik's been overrun due to um, the Game of Thrones, for one. That's where it's filmed. People want to go see where it was filmed and um, a lot of cruise ships. And the, the local citizens got fed up with it. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but I think they have about 50,000 inhabitants and they were having more than a million visitors a year, which is just a no comparison anymore. But one of the reasons the mayor of Dubrovnik said that they approached the cruise ships to spread out these numbers a little bit is so that we can offer our guests a better service. And I thought it wasn't just like, like no, we don't want more tourists, but it was, we only want one ship at a time so that we can actually provide those visitors the experience that we want to give them. And I thought that was a very nice differentiation in the way that, that he was, he and his leadership team and I guess the, the stakeholders in Dubrovnik were thinking that if we're going to have this tourism we want to do it right and we want to actually provide the right the right experience and we can't do that if we have too many people at any one time so I really really enjoyed that conversation yeah yeah for sure for sure uh, the the um, what was interesting as well at the Van Gogh Museum actually is um, you know a lot of people, are, when we talk about over-tourism, people are talking about, and I suppose in many times, accusing Instagram of being a culprit behind over-tourism. And it, I don't know what your take is on it, because actually I, I don't believe that Instagram is the culprit. I think that Instagram is a tool that's being used by people, but it could also be a tool to be used by destinations to actually change it up. And actually, what was interesting was the day before yesterday with the Van Gogh Museum, they were saying that they, what they did last year, which was an amazing thing to do overnight, they completely banned photographs in the galleries, which meant that nobody was hanging around, you know, near the photographs anymore. They were having a look respectfully and then moving on. They weren't hanging around, taking a selfie, anything else. But what they created outside in the foyer, away from the galleries, is almost like an Instagram zone. So they did blow-ups of Van Gogh's finer works, you know, really, really huge ones. And that's the place where you can stand and do your selfies. So they've, they've taken that Instagram phenomenon 
and they've decided to use it for good and for changing things up um, and alleviating some of the pressure at the busy parts of the gallery. I thought that was pretty smart, but what's your take on, on, on Instagram? Uh, well, first of all, that, that, that's a great example, the Van, yeah. Van Gogh Museum, um, because I, I think, I, I, I was at the ITB this year as well, I, I saw a really interesting talk that um, the way when people go through an experience like a museum and take pictures, they, it actually changes their experience. It changes the way they, they're, they're not in the moment. They're not actually appreciating the art. They're more thinking about how this will look on Instagram yeah. rather, than, <laughs> rather than actually being in the moment and experiencing it. So it, and it changes the flows, as you just suggested. Yeah. You know, people stop more in front of certain pictures and everyone wants the same picture. Um, you know, you have waiting lines for pictures yeah. rather than people wanting to ex experience the painting and do these things. But I think in Instagram in, in, in general, I mean, it's, it's, a very popular, it's a very popular tool. Um, I think a lot of people like it because it allows them to share with friends family for one but also followers you know, the influencers and um, they need to be seen in certain places they they take pictures in certain places and um it's it's a big business and i've, I've seen it i've seen it in so many places now with people just waiting for the perfect shot they have their sometimes the selfie stick or sometimes it's the boyfriend or the girlfriend taking the pictures um so they're not in the moment they're there for the picture and it's you know, I, I'm, I don't want to know how much food has gotten cold um, because people were taking pictures of it rather than eating it. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's, so I think Instagram has, has its place, definitely. I think it's a great way to, to share experiences. It's, it can be a marketing tool um, for, for destinations or for tourism businesses or for the people themselves <laughs> creating their own brand. But I think the worrying thing is how it changes people's experiences and how it changes the, the way they move through a destination and whether they're, they're actually connected to it. So I, I, I didn't know about this Van Gogh example, but I think that's, that's, that's a great one. You know, take people, take the phones off people, you know, give, them, give them some space to actually have a, have a nice experience, but then still give them the opportunity because it is that important to, to share where they were and to, to share with their with their followers or even just close friends what, what they're doing at the moment. Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting. Um, when when we talk about the you know responsible management of tourism, you know, we were sort of saying there before that a lot of the destinations in the world and the cities they don't necessarily know what um, you know what's what's their limit, what the maximum is, and we we're talking about you know well integrated um, cities. Uh, I was just thinking, what, as far as you're aware, what are some examples of cities which are on the right path? And, you know, starting to really grapple with this and, you know, they might not have, you know, solved all the world's problems for their city, but they're, they're well on the way. Who's, who's doing it well right now? Um, well, I guess some, some cities at the moment are, are sort of pushing back. I mean, I mentioned Dubrovnik as an example. Yep. Um, are pushing back on on this flood of tourists and at least trying to have some control over the over the numbers when when people come in um, for them I think I think they were the first ones to actually talk to 
the cruise industry directly and go, guys, we, we want to be able to have an input into the schedule at least. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a, that was a great example. Um, I think all, all the destinations that have had um, issues that have been that have been reported um, Amsterdam, Barcelona, or or Venice in Europe being some of the most prominent ones have have sort of pushed back, have in, reduced marketing to a certain certain degree, and focused more on visitor flow management. How do we move people around um, in Venice? The the access gates, I think, to some of the plazas where if, if, if there's a certain number of people in there, they, they, they stop it. At least that was in the media for a while. I'm not sure how, long, how well those have worked um, or how that's been implemented. But I think in general, um, I can't think of a city that has managed this comprehensively um, yet because it's a very difficult thing to do. And as I mentioned before, there's so many different people involved. The city doesn't really have complete control. Um, I think I, we spoke about Bhutan earlier um, briefly. I think Bhutan is an interesting case because they restrict... Um, they don't restrict, actually, sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. They, they put a price on visiting their country. And anyone who's willing to pay that price is, is welcome to come, but they need to pay a certain amount. I think it's $250 a day at the moment yep. in the main season. Cheaper in the off-season. So yep. a good thing, yep. you know, trying to manage demand that way. Um, I think that, that's a good idea to to focus on that high-end tourism, um, to not just give everyone access, and then you can provide a better experience for those people that have, that have paid that money. Um, I mean, I, I think, of course, Antarctica, the Galapagos Islands, um, some of these destinations that are only difficult to access, there it's, it's easier to set certain standards for the vessels that go there, for any, um, any guides that go, go ashore, etc. So the problem is a lot of city destinations, obviously, is that they're very open. It's very easy to get there. Um, if we take Amsterdam, we've spent a lot of time in Amsterdam the last, the last years. Um, you can get there by car, you can get there by train, you can fly in there. And you can't control it or even measure it. Um, I mean, a lot of the tourism in Amsterdam on weekends are people from other parts of Holland for the big events as well. So it's, it's not even... It's not even always the international tourists that are often being counted um, that create over-tourism situations. It can also be locals or nationals. On the, on the, um, on the Amsterdam one, what, what I found interesting, I've spoken to um, uh, recently, again at City Fair, I spoke to guys from uh, The Hague and also from Rotterdam Tourism, and uh, two places I'd never been to. Um, and they were telling me how they're, um, you know, they're about half an hour away from Schiphol, the, the, the main airport there, when you fly into Amsterdam, uh, which isn't actually a huge amount further than the length of time it takes you to get into Amsterdam from Schiphol. Um, and these two destinations, you know, no over-tourism whatsoever. And actually Rotterdam, Rotterdam looks absolutely fascinating. They look like they really manage their tourism very well. They have the, the Rotterdam Partners. Uh, which you know is you know it's the tourist board it's the, the you know the hotels are all integrated the convention bureau um 
but yeah, it was just I just found that quite interesting that you could still fly into Amsterdam for your weekend break as a tourist, but um, but actually not go to Amsterdam and but go but instead go to some cities which are seriously cool uh, and you know very very uncongested as well. Have you been to either of those two cities? Uh, yeah, I've been to both of them. Oh, cool. Um, both both very nice cities. Um, both very um, very different. Yeah. And I think they 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 both have a, a great place for people to have a, a similar experience to yeah. to Amsterdam, depending on what they want. Yeah. I think Amsterdam just has that that sort of fame for some people yeah. um, that they they have to go to Amsterdam. If you um, if you're trying to sell your friends a, a weekend trip to Rotterdam, it's it's just not there yet, you yeah. know. And yeah. it, it all depends on what what you want. Um, for those people that want a less crowded experience, um, but a similar experience, those destinations are are brilliant. Yeah. So I think it's it's, it's the marketing um, marketing yeah. of the destinations that can they can shift people to do this. Exactly. Some people always want just want to come to Amsterdam. Yeah. It's like when you want when you when you go to Egypt, you want to see the pyramids. Yeah. Um, you know, you can say, well, hang on, no, there's there's something else here. Okay, great. I want to see that too, but I want to see the pyramids. <laughs> there's, there's going to be... It's almost a brand, isn't it? Though it's it's it is almost like a, a brand. You know, Venice is like a brand. Paris is like a brand. Those kind of big cities. And yes, you know, you've got other cities that. Um, you know, another one which I met recently, somewhere I haven't been, but I so want to go. Nîmes in France. Have you been to Nîmes? No. Nîmes has got what I could only describe as pretty much a Roman Colosseum right in the middle of the city. It's a huge, big Roman amphitheatre that looks like a, a smaller version of the, um, of the Colosseum in Rome. It's just... I was looking at the videos and the photographs that they were showing me there from the Nîmes tourism. I was like, that's incredible. And she was just saying, she said, yeah, you know, we don't really have a huge amount of tourists. I, I started laughing. I was like, that's just incredible because, you know, you look at somewhere like Rome, which obviously does have a, a rich, I, you know, I can't, I'm not comparing directly the two, but what I'm saying is, you know, you, you've got something worth seeing there in Nîmes, but maybe it just doesn't have that, that, brand or the, the 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 awareness maybe i don't know yeah or, or not yet or there's opportunities for different groups of travelers to go there i think it's um i think it's a good point there's so much out there that um if people knew it was there <laughs> they, they would love to go there <laughs> so it becomes a, a communication challenge and um some some of these places that are more more overrun with tourists might be quite happy to give up some of them um, and give, let them go somewhere else. Yeah. I think, and it, it will happen anyway because other places people will go, it comes back to expectations. Yeah. Right? You go somewhere and you expect to actually be able to walk freely in the Colosseum or around the Tower of Pisa or wherever it is. And then you get there and it's crowded and it's, um, it's not what you wanted in a way. And then you will talk. No, and you, you'll tell your friends about it. And then that's where the, the online reviews come in. Yeah. Um, also for, for destinations or no, for, for attractions. And you'll, people will hear about this more and more. And that, that feedback will come in. And then some people will start looking for alternatives. 
or they will just quickly visit the highlight and then go somewhere else. There's, these, these flows will change. That's, that's making me think, is this, I mean, is there an element of, um, of this over-tourism problem which is going to be, um, which is actually going to rectify itself? For, the, for just the reason that you were saying, as you were just saying that then, you're saying, and you, you know, and I, I get it completely. If I went to Rome or Venice, I've got expectations in my head, you know, walking freely across the bridge's size or whatever else, and I get there and the experience isn't what I signed up to. I'll tell everybody, I'll leave bad reviews. That then could have a knock-on effect. I probably won't be going back to those kind of destinations in the future. Will it actually start to level out itself just because of the horrendous experience that people will have? I think it will. I think it's a, it's a self-regulating system in a way. Um, and as people look more and more to online reviews and more and more people post online reviews, not just the very good and the very bad ones, but also in the middle. So people realistically share their, um, their experiences. I think this, this, this will regulate over time. And if you now go to one of these destinations, you already have this picture in your head. It's like, ah, oh, this is going to be busy. This is going to be, so you prepared for it in a way. And then you, you go there, you know, maybe you buy the t-shirt and, and then you leave, but, but you knew what you were signing up for. And if, if you don't want that, you will, you will end up going somewhere else because there's more and more information of the sort of more off the beaten track places as well. Um, there's not, you know, we, we have so much information at our, our fingertips that we can find other places like Nîmes or, yeah. um, or Den Haag or Rotterdam and that, that might offer 99% of, of the experience that you wanted without, without the crowds. Yeah. So, no, I think information technology, I mean, that's, that's how we... That's what we were talking about before, the app sort of telling people when something is busy and when something is not busy. Um, I think that's that sort of thing. It's like Google Google Maps in a way. You know, it tells you where the traffic is, right? If that route is busy, you, it, it suggests that you go somewhere else. Um, so maybe something like that will, maybe even Google will do it yeah. if they're listening. Yeah. Um, you know, then um, there's sort of hotspots and to, to suggest to people to go somewhere else or give people the information to make that decision themselves. I think that's, that's the key. It's, it's about honest communication with tourists about how busy it is, how long you're going to have to wait for, etc. And then people can make that decision. Yeah. Um, because then, then they can sort of, in a way, manage their own expectations. And otherwise, you get the negative reviews. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I must admit, on the on the on low season traveler, as far as as far as we're kind of concerned, I think um, it's as much about the promotion of the the places that are doing it well and the places that aren't as you know um, aren't as much uh, sort of you know suffering with any kind of over tourism as much as it is you know bashing the guys that you know or putting people putting people off traveling to the other places the irony is i'd love to go to venice i haven't been i'd love to go to rome i haven't been um but my feeling on those destinations rightly or wrongly is um maybe i've i've missed that opportunity in my lifetime maybe i've missed it for the experience that i would want which which would be you know I, 
again part of the reason I set this up I can't stand crowds I, I don't I really don't do very well in crowds at all um, and from for, for someone like me maybe maybe I've left it too late and I've missed I've missed the trick I don't know I think there are there will be destinations like that um, I mean one when you say that one one thing I, I remember first time I traveled to Cuba was 2006 I think and it was still very, there wasn't a lot of people there. Um, if you go to a supermarket, there would be one tube of toothpaste, not just one type, but one, one tube. So it was, you know, it was, it was a complete mind blowing experience at the time and um, absolutely loved it. Friendliest people, beautiful place, etc. So I went back five years later, 2011, I think. And already in those five years, so much changed. Um, there was more small business, which is, positive because people could now earn some money from tourism and you know the casa particulares the homestays and there was more and more going on but also in a way it took some of the charm away already yeah. so now i'm i'm hesitant to go back because <laughs> since it's been opened up more it might be a completely different place and, they say know. never go back david don't they that's what they say yeah. they say never go back and i think it's for good reason i tell you very similar to that um i was in Koh Samui for the first time in um it's in the late 90s and uh, i was on the chueng strip i'm sure you've been to Koh Samui, right uh, no i haven't actually Maybe not. I've been to some of the other islands, but I'm not that. I'm kind of hesitant to say it, but you know, there's parts of Koh Samui that already it's yeah. Anyway, but Chiwang, it was you know, it was quite quiet. You know, you stay on beach huts along a stunning beach and absolutely gorgeous. And I went back. Uh, it was about four years later, and there was Starbucks, there was Boots, uh, there was a tes <laughs> there was a Tesco. It it was utterly depressing. God knows what it's like at this stage. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, like you say, you sort of get disheartened by it because there was a kind of a cutesy element to it before. Um, it was somewhere that was very, very different. There wasn't much that was familiar from home. And then when you're seeing these, these, you know, a McDonald's and a Starbucks and a, everything else, God, it was just, I didn't really, I just felt like I was in Manchester, but it was a bit hotter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. Not quite, but you know, you know what I mean? It's that. And that's and that's part that's part of it though, isn't it? You know, we, we all want to travel to these different places, but we we don't almost want everybody to go uh, because we want them to stay the same. But inevitably, uh, they change, I guess, like Cuba. Absolutely, and I, I think you know some some of these um, some of these changes are good if it creates more benefits for the for the local population. It gives some more people access, but when when does it go too far? Yeah, that's the that's the big question. I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, David, I'm conscious of time. Um, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you, um, if sure. I may, before we go. Uh, so straight into them. First off, um, what's your earliest travel memory? Earliest travel memory. Memory. Um, the first time we went to New Zealand and Australia when I was about five years old. Yeah. And just that blew my mind and well that's why it became home you know? <laughs> that's yeah. a that's a, a good enough advert for us and yeah. where's the best where's the best place you've ever woken up I, <clears throat> no, no it's, it's probably um i mean some some of the most stunning places have been um sort of camping grounds in new zealand um, the department of conservation there does some 
has some really nice sort of um, camping grounds close to close to beaches and some spectacular nature areas and you really wake up right in the middle of it so yeah waking up in nature in New Zealand yeah lovely um your happiest travel memory Ooh, that's that's a tricky one but, a lot um, of them i guess yeah um most most recent ones um they, they probably involve going surfing early in the morning in beautiful places oh, nice. <laughs> any any place that stand out um bali definitely um yeah. i think bali is just one of those still one of those magical places and especially early morning when there's when there's no crowds yet yeah <laughs> um yeah it's it's just a beautiful place you know if you've got some turtles in the water with you and the, the reef fish under under your feet and some beautiful waves it's it's a very special spot nice nice um what do you never leave home without when you're traveling on trips especially on longer trips and um, pocket knife ah. <laughs> or multi-tool or something yeah yeah, yeah. They, they come in handy for all sorts of things yeah yeah absolutely i i relate to that i i um i have a, a very small swiss army knife not one of these ones with the 20 blades um <laughs> that, my, that my father gave me years ago but i always keep with me and you know the amount of times it's been handy for one thing or another it's got tweezers on it um and uh scissors and it's just actually yeah it could be just cutting tags off the bags or whatever but it always comes in useful that's a very good to have yeah yeah um what do you dream of doing that you still haven't done yet well in, in terms of travel one thing that's that's very high um on my on my bucket list is a surf charter so really live on a boat for a couple of weeks and just cruise from one one surf break to the next they do it throughout indonesia or maldives or different places wow there's companies that do that right yeah yeah it's it's quite a specialized industry but it's it's growing you know, it gets gets you away from from the crowds in a way awesome <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll join you on that as well that's okay. that's, that's just you know that's just hit my bucket list too man and <laughs> um, who have you been inspired by most in the travel industry or in your career um well there's, there's been lots of people along the way that have that have um that have helped me develop my career and everything but someone who i've sort of followed, I've never met him, um, but someone who I've always followed is, is Richard Branson. Um, you know, through through some of his books, um, I think his earliest biography, The Losing My Virginity, yep. <laughs> was called. Um, brilliant book, I think, just the way he approaches business and, and, and life and um, what he does to build the cultures in his companies and his thoughts. Also, some of the more environmental thoughts that he, he had quite early on. I think he was one of the guys first trying to push biofuel into into airlines. Um, I think I found him still find him very inspiring and in what he does at work and otherwise as well. Yeah, so he'd have to be one of the guys. Yeah. Have you um, just on that? Have you ever heard the podcast by Guy Raz? Um, called How I Built This, uh, no. because he, he did, he, you'd really enjoy this. So uh, the podcast is, for our listeners as well, uh, the podcast is called How I Built This. It's by a guy called Guy Raz, that's uh, G-U-Y-R-A-Z, and he interviews people about how they built their company from nothing. 
And oh, one of really? the people that he interviews is um, is Branson, and it's a really, really great interview and very well worth uh, listening to. So that's just as an aside. Um, nice one. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. And Guy Raz can pay me a commission or something, I'm sure. <laughs> um, name, name me two places that you would return to. So two places that you've been to that you would return to in a heartbeat. I mean, one of them is Bali. Yep. Just, probably just because we're talking about it, but no, it's a, it's a special place still. Um, another one would be Northern Norway. Um, so really the, the Lofoten Islands. I'm not sure if you've been been up that far. Um, I was up Tromso, as that, far as Tromso. Yeah, yep. Yeah, that, that area around there, and sort of the, the Lofotens and then north, um, north towards the North Cape. That's just a, a stunning piece of this planet. And um, in winter it can be quite quite dark, but I guess in, in summer you have all all day all day sun, so yep. special place. Would definitely would love to go back. Very good. And uh, finally um, the, the last question I always ask is, where are you going for, for your summer? Uh, but you, you're already, you're already traveling out and about. Have you got, where are you off to next? What's the, what's the plans for the rest of the summer? Well, um, since I'm in the Southern hemisphere, it's going to be winter, but, but no, I'm, I'm on a, on a sort of trip through, through South America at the moment, um, Argentina and now heading towards heading north, heading into to Bolivia and Peru. So um, going to see some, see some new places, do some, do some research on, on some, some of the more overcrowded destinations as well, I'm sure. Um, but, but also get, get to hopefully see some places that are, um, that are still a bit off the beaten track and see some places out of, out of the season. So awesome. yeah, staying in South America for the, for the European summer. Very good. Well, listen, wish you um, every success as you continue your journeys. Um, it sounds like uh, you're going to have quite an interesting couple of months. And maybe you'd be so kind as to join us again uh, in a few months' time um, and give us an update uh, about uh, what you've been up to. And um, maybe we can have a catch-up again and uh, discuss a little bit more um, of, the, of the issues of over-tourism and generally uh, put, put the world to rights between us. What do you say? Brilliant. Uh, thank you very much for this. Um, great, great chatting to you as, as always. And yeah, we'd, we'd love to continue this conversation. I think uh, we've, we've, we've framed some of the, the challenges out there. And I think there's, there's definitely more room to talk about um, solutions because I think there's, there's plenty of destinations that are doing a lot of great work, um, businesses as well, because I think um, maybe as a closing comment, um, I think, you know, destinations are made up of businesses and it's, it's um, the destinations often can't manage everything mm -hmm. it's up to the individual sort of companies or operators to, to do their part as well so I think um, there's, there's a lot of good good work being done out there and I hopefully um, you know you with low season traveler and us as the industry in general can be part of the, the solution not the problem in the future Absolutely. Great point to, uh, to, to end on. Thanks a million again for your time, David, and uh, all the best for the rest of the summer stroke winter. And that's a wrap. Thanks again for your company this week, and I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the topics which we covered in today's podcast. Please do drop me a line at jed at lowseasontraveller.com. 
Next week, we head over to the French Riviera as I'm joined by the enthusiastic, passionate, and charming Nadja Graf from the Nice Côte d'Azur Tourism Board. If you're enjoying the podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to leave us a review on iTunes and indeed share the podcast with your friends, family, and social networks. We're the world's first organization entirely dedicated to promoting travel during the low seasons in each destination as a means of alleviating the growing burden of over-tourism. And that's why our content will always be free for everyone, as we believe that travel is better without the crowds. <laughs>